This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to getbrewninja.com and using the code BREWNINJA21. There is absolutely no correlation between brew house efficiency and runoff gravity. The reference brew house efficiency got better, and then once you got past that point, the reference brew house efficiencies got worse again, and it was pretty linear. I needed something better that was going to estimate the gravity at any point in the water. This week on the show, Joe Waltz walks us through his journey building water simulations, as well as predicting and improving brew house efficiency. My name is Joe Waltz, and I am the quality manager and R&D brewer at Carbon 4 Brewing in Madison, Wisconsin. Joe, we're going to be talking about lauder simulations. What exactly is a lauder simulation and what are some of the ways you've put one to use? So a lauder simulation, you know, I'm just, it's just something that I'm calling it. I don't know that it's really any specific thing, but what I take it to mean is just something that tells you what your gravity is going to be at a certain volume of lauder runoff. So my initial goal for this, and this was back in uh, 2011, I was working at Ale Asylum at the time in their original facility, and the goal was primarily for recipe formulation. So I'm sure you're familiar with various brewing software and how it's evolved over time. I honestly don't know where it stands right now. I don't know if this has been overcome, but in the past, there was no estimation of your brew house efficiency based on your target runoff gravity. And so if you were brewing a high-gravity beer, you just had to enter in a fudge factor because you knew it was going to suck. And I wanted to create something that was more inherent so I didn't have to go through that exercise every time. So I wanted to you know, say, this is my, my target gravity. It would ballpark some brew house efficiency for me that would get me really close. So that's where you know, the, the initial, my first method came from. I'd imagine most every brewer has calculated their brew house efficiency at one time or another, but define brew house efficiency for us at a high level. 
That's a that's a good question because a lot of people think of it in different terms. Um, even some some brewers that run fairly large, really respectable breweries do it in a totally different way than I would. So what I'm what I'm looking at specifically is the amount of extract that makes it into your kettle versus the amount of extract available to you in your grain. So not the total grain weight, but the total extract weight. As you said earlier, we're, we're here talking today because essentially you wanted to find a, a better way to predict brew house efficiency. How were you calculating brew house efficiency previously and what was wrong with that method? So before I started looking at this at all, um, I don't even remember what I was doing. It was probably just some sort of <laughs> some sort of trend that was like, you know, maybe it was linear like gravity versus efficiency, but what I eventually started doing was looking at batch sparging. And this isn't the method I use now. This is still like an intermediate method, but it was the first thing I came up with was to say basically you've got all this sugar water when you mash in, right? So you have a fixed amount of extract and a fixed amount of water. And that's all going to average out at a certain gravity, which is, is going to be pretty close to the first running's gravity when you take a measurement. And so I figured you've got that and you drain everything that you can into your kettle and there's going to be a certain amount retained by your spent grains. And if you add another round of water to do a batch sparge and take the average again, you got all that sugar and the existing water added to the new water. So now you can calculate another gravity and another volume, and then you can drain it and repeat and so on. And what I found that as you added more batch sparges, you go from just simply draining the louder ton, which you might do if you're trying to make a 30 Plato beer, um, all the way to batch sparging with five uh, separate water additions after mash-in. The difference between the two, so if you're going from zero to one sparge, one to two sparges, and so on, the difference between the two got much closer together. And so I was like, okay, I've got mathematical con convergence. And if I've got that, then that five batch sparge um, situation, which is almost no different than a four batch sparge si uh, situation, is probably pretty close to what a continuous sparge would do. So I use that as the basis for my model for what I was doing at Ale Asylum at the time. And the reason I did that is because the math is really easy. You're basically just adding sugar and water and seeing what the gravity is. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe this resulted in a publication of some kind? Yes. Yeah, I wrote a, an article for the New Brewer. It was the November-December 2011 issue. And the kind of endpoint of all this mathematical simulation was a table of multipliers so it had your target runoff gravity and then there was a multiplier for brew house efficiency so the premise of the whole thing is that you have this baseline efficiency say it's what you get for really low gravity work like you're making an ordinary bitter or something like that so there's your baseline and then depending on your starting gravity you would multiply that baseline by a multiplier to estimate the brew house efficiency for your recipe so you used batch sparging simulations for a number of years, but once again, you wanted something better. Yes. And the thing that drove that was kind of a, a weird process that we had at Ale Asylum. And I say weird with a lot of love because it worked really well, but it was also a little bit of a pain. I don't know any other breweries who do this aside from the, the brewery that I ran out in Tacoma, Washington for a couple of years. That was Narrows Brewing Company. I don't know if they're still doing it or not. but. What Ale Asylum did was they would 
collect about 80% of their target louder runoff volume. And then they'd stop the louder, they'd mix it up, make sure it was uniform, pull a gravity sample, and take a quick measurement and say, okay, and the brew, the beer that they brewed most of the time was Hopalicious. And so they had that down to a science. They were like, oh yeah, the gravity is this, add this many, you know, barrels of kettle wort per, you know, 10th of a degree Play-Doh that they were above their target. And it worked out really well. But when they brewed anything besides Hopalicious, it wasn't as predictable. So I implemented this method where basically we would take that same measurement and I would use that gravity as the runoff gravity and use that to say to to get a brew house efficiency multiplier. And then I would compare it to where I thought I would be and determine how full to fill the kettle from there. So it was a way to ensure they were getting the right gravity. And this batch sparging method improved it, but it didn't improve it as much as I hoped it would. And I, I think the reason why is because I wasn't at an endpoint. So if you think about a batch sparge, you're adding your water and draining, you're adding more water and draining, and you've pretty much got all your water out when you're done. But during this process, there was still way more work in the mash ton. You know, it wasn't that full fill and drain. So I don't think the multipliers were completely valid. They trended in the right direction. But I needed something better that was going to estimate the gravity at any point in the louder. Talk about what a 2016 IBD article did for you. Oh, this is awesome. So um, I was sitting there reading this IBD article about uh, louder ton technology. So they were looking at what really defines a, a modern louder ton. They were looking at some different manufacturers and some of the different technologies they use. And that was really the premise of the article. This uh, loudering simulation came off of a random chart in that article that showed a louder ton at a Grolsch brewery in the Netherlands. And it was something like, it, it was built for like a 700 barrel batch or seven whatever hectoliters, 850 hectoliters maybe. Um, but this massive louder ton, and they showed a screenshot of the entire louder with all their instrumentation in their brew house. So it showed this nice profile for gravity. It showed a different line for how much wort was collected over time. And my jaw just dropped. I was like, I can't believe they just published that. You know, that's the kind of thing that you might think proprietary data, a um, lot of information in there. So I just took that and started playing with it. I found a some kind of free online software that let me do graphing a little more accurately than just looking at it with my own eye. So it basically pulled the image up and I clicked on the the louder curve or you know profile somewhere like 80 times and entered in the coordinates for each data point into a spreadsheet to um, come up with a profile. And so what I did was I built a louder simulation method around that curve and then made a couple of those factors adjustable to configure it to different brew house configurations. Okay, cool. Um, is there anything else you want to say about sort of like how you built the simulation? Yeah. So, you know, the thing, one of the things that I tried to avoid was having to match the, the louder profile where your foundation water is circulating through the mash bed, the grain bed. Um, because that's going to depend on so many things that 
even in a single brewery are going to be different all the time when you brew. So what I mean by that is you've got your starting, when you start your Vorloff, you're going to be at a certain gravity and that gravity is going to rise as you continue your Vorloff. And somewhere during that rise or after that rise, you know, again, it's highly variable. Um, you're going to be at your peak, your peak first running's gravity. And at some point that foundation water from the top is going to trickle its way back down to the bottom and you're going to start decreasing your gravity. And all this is going to happen before any of your sparge water makes it, um, makes it to the, the mash ton or the louder ton before you even turn on your sparge water. So I am really just looking at an average because there's no good reason to ever stop your louder before that point anyway you know, before any of your sparge water would make it through. Cause at that point you've got, you've got bad recipe design. Um, if you're cutting your louder that early, you can just use less grain and cut that louder a little later. So no matter what, you're going to move yourself forward on that profile. So I figured that early profile doesn't really matter. So my first running's gravity is just represented by an average that is not necessarily going to match what you would pull from a measurement, you know, just because that, um, that peak is going to be higher. Talk about some of the other assumptions that go into your model. Yeah, so we already we already covered the constant first running's gravity. Um, the other big thing that I did, and this is something that I did to really just make the math easier. I don't know if there's any validity to this or not, but I picked a fixed endpoint. So looking at the Grolsch um, louder profile, uh, their brew house efficiency, and this is this is just ridiculous, you know. And and you're comparing it to lab efficiency, so you know, take it with a grain of salt. You can get better than lab efficiency with a mash filter, but their lab efficiency was, or sorry, their brew house efficiency was something like ninety nine point seven percent for like a sixteen plato runoff, which is just outrageously good. Um, don't quote those numbers. I'm going from memory there, but. What I did is I took their louder out to 100% efficiency. And it was like an extrapolation process, so it's not a known thing. But what I ended up with was about 15 pounds of wort per pound of extract from your grain. So the amount of extract in your grain, not necessarily in your kettle. So I considered that 15 pounds of wort per pound of of extract to be a, a fully sparged grain bill. So taking your louder out as far as you would ever take it. And so I decided to set that value to the baseline efficiency of a brewery, no matter what your water to grain ratio is. So um, I know you've had some, at, at least one podcast, maybe a couple where you talk about how mashing thicker improves your brew house efficiency. And that's true. And it's more true at high gravity than low gravity. And the assumption that I made is when you're at extremely low gravity, thinking like six and a half, seven Plato, that difference is going to be completely obscured. So I assume the brew house efficiency is constant across all water to grain ratios at that point, um, just to give the simulation something to work to. And it's almost a sanity check as well, just to have, you know, a corrected value. So nothing goes off the rails and diverges based on your, on your mash thickness or anything like that. So constant brew house efficiency at the runoff uh, reference runoff mass is another characteristic of these simulations. Um, and then finally, the shape of the sparged runnings curve. So when you're going between that flat first runnings curve or line, that horizontal line and the endpoint, it's going to look a little bit like exponential decay. Um, it's not exactly, but it's, it's pretty similar. And that shape is determined by 
hitting that fixed brew house efficiency at that reference point. Coming up. All the brew house efficiencies got better. So it was it was cool to be able to use this method in such a strange, obscure way. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Sponsored by BSG, distributors of TNS Hop Oils, a revolutionary hop product that gives your beer all the hop intensity with none of the astringency. Make better beer and get more from each turn with less work. Change your brewing game with TNS Hop Oils. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn how. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Positively impact your process, product, and profitability with actionable insights from BrewIQ, the industry-leading real-time fermentation monitoring solution. Visit www.precisionfermentation.com backslash MBAA to start saving time and money today. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District St. Paul, Minneapolis meets at Blackstack Brewing February 23rd. The Master Brewers Brewery Packaging Technology course starts February 24th. District Great Plains meets February 24th and 25th in Kansas City. The multi-district event known as the Eastern Technical Conference is back March 24th and 25th at the Atlantic Sands Hotel and Conference Center in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. District Rocky Mountain is accepting applications for the newly formed Hoppy Grandma Scholarship until March 31st. The Hoppy Grandma Scholarship honors Carmen Duran by assisting brewers with the tuition of brewing courses to help advance their careers. Details can be found in the scholarship section of the District Rocky Mountain page on the Master Brewers website. District St. Louis is holding a yeast symposium April 20th. District Northwest meets in beautiful Hood River, April 21st and 22nd. The Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course begins June 9th. The world-famous Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course begins September 29th. The 2023 Master Brewers Conference will be October 6th through the 8th in Seattle, Washington. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you.
Now back to the show. Joe, fill in some gaps for me. I'm trying to make sense of how a model based on a giant lauder ton at a mega brewery is going to actually work for the average craft brewery. So the variable that really makes that work is one that I call first runnings efficiency. And what that is, is the amount of first runnings that you collect compared to the amount of first runnings, or I guess the amount of work that would be in your, in your louder ton um, <clears throat> before you start running off. So you've got this amount of first runnings wort. Um, some of it's going to be retained by grains if you were going to not sparge, but you are going to sparge. So you should be able to push you know, most of that out. But there's always going to be some sort of mixing between your, your sparge water and your first runnings wort. So um, that hypothetical 100% first runnings efficiency isn't really achievable. Um, the Grolsch, for example, I believe I assumed uh, 78% first runnings efficiency is what gave me a good data match with their louder profile. And so if I'm looking at something like Fantasy Factory, which is the, the flagship beer at Carbon 4, um, if I look at a whole bunch of batches and just kind of average out which efficiency number gives me good data, I'm looking at more like 55%. So that's a, a 23% drop on first earnings efficiency, but that's also the difference between a huge, beautiful louder ton. Yeah, multi-million and, dollar like engineered. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And a secondhand, you know, 14 barrel, just probably made in the 90s um, combo mash louder ton. And you know, that doesn't mean that we're getting that bad of brew house efficiency. It just means that our sparge water comes through that first running's work much earlier. But again, I've got that reference value that I'm assuming is going to recover. So the end result of that is that the curve for sparge runnings gets shallower. So um, I wonder how much of that is like aspect ratio, because like I, I guarantee you that the, the giant Grolsch water ton is like a lot wider than your combi ton is, you know? Yeah, that is an interesting question. And I, and I feel like if we could somehow get data from a brewery like Guinness that I believe still uses combo mash, mash louder tons, that would be really, really interesting because I would imagine those are designed um, with much higher aspect ratios. Yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Did you want to continue on with that? Oh, no, not at all. That's, that's okay. really all I, all I had to say about that um, was that this first running's efficiency. And it's such a weird variable because... It can't be measured. It's just one of those things that I calculate to make the data match. And when I apply this to a different brewer house, I'll pull up a bunch of different recipes and make the data match a bunch of different recipes. So I've basically got equations to figure out the equations. Um, so I talk about it like it's measured, like, oh, yeah, carbon four, we get this, this first earnings efficiency, and it's not measured at all. It's just what number matches the data. Could you measure it? That would be really interesting. I think n probably not, unless no, um, because you've got your foundation water that starts to dilute. So you can't just look at your first running's gravity. At some point, your your foundation water is coming through, and then at some point, your sparge water is coming through, and they're going to bleed together, and you're not really going to know which is which. So you know, you could say at what point in the louder did I get all the extract that would have been present in my first runnings. But you wouldn't necessarily, it wouldn't all be first runnings work. You mentioned earlier, one approach some brewers might take to hit 
a target gravity in their brew kettle. Do you want to talk about any other approaches? Yeah. So, um, you know, the approach at Ailes Island again was to stop the lauder at about 80% full, take a measurement, get a prediction, and then go to that predicted value. So once I developed this newer method, this newer, you know, simulation based on the growth data, I had much better success at doing that at Ailes Island. So it became fairly predictable. Um, where we would be able to adjust our, our volume and, and hit our gravity. And it's still frustrating because you're at a small craft brewery with a lot of different variables. So it's frustrating when you might normally collect 40 barrels and you only get 38, but at least you're hitting gravity. You know, it's better than collecting 40 and being way off. Um, the Some of the things that I have done at other breweries or, or seen the brewers in those breweries do where I've worked, um, one of them is to simply add sugar if you're low, you know, different, different sugars for different purposes. And that sometimes drove me nuts because you might be making some kind of a big dumb stout and then somebody's going to say, I'm going to add three bags of dextrose. And it's like, okay, you just completely changed your fermentability. Yeah. I feel like DME and malt extract work, work better for that, you know, and you're going to have some trade-offs there in terms of your, your ingredient costs versus your. I mean, it's, it's all, you know, going to cost more anyway, if your volume is low. Um, but one approach that I've seen at, at Octopi specifically, this is where I worked. Um, and I believe there was also maybe a technical quarterly article or a new brewer article about this at some point in time, but brewing a, a recipe to yield a, a reliably higher gravity and then diluting in the whirlpool to get your volume is another approach. Yeah, I've and, done a lot of that. Yeah, and I, I see a lot of benefits and a couple of drawbacks to that. I mean, the, the benefit is that it makes it even more predictable. So if you go to kettle full, you're not interrupting your louder. You're not going to slow that process, especially if you're trying to you know push however many brews through a, a separate mash and louder ton a day. You're going to keep that train rolling. And once you get your kettle full extract, that's going to be the same as your whirlpool extract, unless you're going to add other adjuncts or, or things like that. So you know at the start of your boil what your final volume is going to be. And you can account for that with your ingredients, you know, so you've got to bump up some hops and whatnot. And, and we did the same thing at Ale Asylum. When we got our predicted value, we would adjust our hops accordingly. Um, I've seen brewers who do that and brewers who don't do that because, again, trade-offs, you know, using whole boxes of hops is nice for inventory, especially now that you can buy um, 11 pound boxes of hops and not have it be a huge, you know, premium on cost and stuff like that. So depending on your brew house size, it might be better for inventory management. It might be better for ingredient freshness to just add whole, whole, whole hot boxes and get a little bit of variability in your characteristic versus, you know, keeping bags and bags of hops around all the time. Not that there aren't other things you can do, like streamline your your varieties you're using. Um, but one of the things that I encountered at Octopi trying to analyze some of their data is that when you take your wort and dilute with hot liquor tank water, you're taking wort that's near boiling and adding water that's going to be at a lower temperature. So that in itself, even if you always add the same amount, is going to change your uh, hop utilization, for example, especially with Whirlpool additions. So if if you're brewing a beer where IBUs matter, you got to take that into account. And then that problem is going to be exacerbated if you add different amounts of water 
you know, like you're not, you're not always going to dilute by the same amount. So, right. Yeah. So, you know, that, that I would say would be a drawback to that method, but so many other things about it are easy. Um, I actually use that method when I do pilot batches at carbon four, cause it's much easier. Do you want to talk about how you're using the model in your brew house now? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because the one thing that drove me to change this process is now something that I don't really do anymore. So, you know, it kind of, I, I don't want to say it made itself obsolete, but, you know, the, the original purpose wasn't there. But this still remains a better simulation method than the batch sparging method. So it's better for recipe formulation. So it wasn't all for nothing. Why is data collection such a difficult but important part of all of this? Oh, man. Um, you know, I think you've got a lot of people taking measurements with often really substandard instrumentation. So, um, you know, you're going to pull a sample for a gravity measurement and it's like, is that completely homogenous? Is that any kind of a priority for the brewing process? Is that is that sample being um, corrected for the right way. The data that you rely on suppliers for, such as your COA, you know, if you go back to a brew log, for example, and you want to say, what was my brew house efficiency on this batch? You need to look up your COAs for every grain. And that just takes forever. And if you're lucky, you've actually got them, you know, somewhere. When I'm looking at like two year old brew records, I'm like, Oh man, there are no COAs for this. The the monster doesn't even have that COA anymore. Um, silo fills are especially challenging, um, and even more so if you don't completely empty your silo, which I don't recommend. I think, you know, for for traceability and especially in terms of avoiding massive recalls, you want to empty your silo at you know before every fill. But you know, sometimes you got blended malt. Sometimes the maltster is going to blend several several lots together. So any individual COA isn't going to cut it. So you got to do a lot of digging to make sure you've got um, the right starting point for your extract in terms of looking at your brew house efficiency because what's in the malt is important. Uh, yeah. So grain weights. I mean, I used to, when I worked at Nero's out in Tacoma, their way of measuring grain was to pull it in from a, from a silo. This is base malt. It would come in from a silo into this device that had a hydraulic uh, a hydraulic gate. So it would measure, I think it was 15 pounds of grain, stop the silo, dump it in, measure 15 pounds of grain, stop the silo, dump it in, into the hopper. So over the course of weighing 1,000 pounds, you've got a whole lot of potential errors, you know, multiplied by the number of times that gate opens and closes. So, you know, is your weight accurate? So there are all these pitfalls to really knowing what's going on in your brewery. So the best you can do is just pay attention to them and, and hope you're accounting for them correctly. Let's take a look at an example of practical troubleshooting. In 2011 at AL Asylum, you observed that there was little to no correlation between brewhouse efficiency and wort gravity. Talk about that. Yeah, so this is this is one of those fundamental things that should be true where if you're looking at several different recipes, your brew house efficiency should get worse as your target runoff gravity goes up. And looking at the data at Ale Asylum in, in 2011, I pulled up a number of recipes. I believe it was eight or nine different recipes. I think it was eight. Um, 
And there was absolutely no correlation between brew house efficiency and runoff gravity. So I was trying to trying to get a handle on what what could cause that. And my suspicion is that it was due to water chemistry. So at Ale Asylum at the time, we weren't doing any recipe-specific water treatments. We were adding um, a fixed amount of acidulated malt to every grain bill. And a couple recipes got, got different amounts, but by and large, it was a, a pretty constant number. Um, and we didn't actually know what our water chemistry was because we were pulling the water into our hot liquor tank untreated. But out here in Madison, Wisconsin, our water is very hard and very alkaline. So it has a lot of a lot of temporary hardness that precipitates a lot of chalk. So you pull that water into your hot liquor tank and heat it up and it starts starts precipitating chalk. So you get white deposits on everything. And over the course of the day, we are filling and emptying the hot liquor tank multiple times, um, you know, during during brewing and everything like that. So the water was always in an active state of chalk precipitation and was always being added to, you know, more water of different water chemistries being added to it. And then some of the water is being taken away, chalk's precipitating the whole time. So we didn't even know what we had for water chemistry. So that was, was the first step was figuring out what our water was actually like. And this method became useful for that because what I ended up doing was taking that, that nonsense brew house efficiency data and converting those brew house efficiencies to reference brew house efficiency. So whether I was brewing a batch of beer that was 12 Play-Doh or a batch of beer that was 15 Play-Doh or, or you know, a batch that was 20 Play-Doh, I would look at all those brew house efficiencies and apply those multipliers from the batch sparging method because that's what I was using at the time. So I applied the, the multipliers for those target recipes to give me... Um, what I thought would be the reference brew house efficiency for each recipe. So, so I basically took all those recipes and normalized them by gravity and looked at what the, um, what those brew house efficiencies were at, at that sort of hypothetical condition. And when I did that, I got a nice little, little graph that basically had a triangle where efficiency. So I was plotting out the reference brew house efficiency versus the ideal residual alkalinity of each grain bill. So that sounds like a mouthful. What that really means is by whatever method I was using to assess, you know, water chemistry at the time, um, I would look at the acid contributions of the malt and say, what alkalinity, you know, do I need to achieve? I believe the mash pH that I picked as a reference was 5.4. So what residual alkalinity do I need in my water to achieve a pH of 5.4 with this, this grain bill? So I plotted the reference brew house efficiency against that and found a nice triangular shape where the, the reference brew house efficiency got better as the residual alkalinity increased to about, uh, about two to two and a half milliequivalents per liter. And then once you got past that point, the reference brew house efficiencies got worse again. And it was pretty linear, you know, with the exception of a couple of beers at the very top that were really high gravity that you would expect the margin of error on those to be greater because you're not, you know, sparging much of your grain bill. So the conclusion that I, I drew from this was that our average hot liquor tank water, at least for the first brew of the day, so all my data was from from the first brew of the day just to keep that variable out of it. Um, I concluded that my residual alkalinity was about 2.5 milliequivalents per liter or 125 milligrams per liter as calcium carbonate. 
um, happened to be for the, the brand of beer was Amber Gaddon. Um, so our water was really well suited for that. And so what I did was I, I just made the assumption that that's what our water was like. And I adjusted the acidulated malt for all the other recipes um, to take that into account. And all the brew house efficiencies got better. So it was, it was cool to be able to use this method in such a strange, obscure way. That was Joe Waltz here on the Master Brewers Podcast. Check the show notes for a link to Joe's spreadsheets. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers Podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers Podcast and that you appreciate their support. Can't 